And I think a lot of people don't realize that expires in general raise your average price. Like right now, if you are a new agent and you wanted to get out there and do something to create your business, as the market changes, you should be calling expires because as the market changes, if it does go down, what's the first thing to expire? What are the first houses that don't sell? Higher prices. If you want to raise your average price next year, start calling expires right now. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Guys, today I get to interview Donnie Morrow, a tier six club wealth coach. For those of you guys that don't know, that's a big deal. This guy's doing a lot of volume. He's with eXp, just really building a really great team. And we're going to say the word profitable. For those of you that are agents or have built teams, most teams that start to scale actually aren't profitable, which was a big surprise to me. But then I started building one and I realized how easy it is to build a real estate team that is not profitable. So the, the topics we're going to talk about today are how to lead you to a team or to a growth level that is not only big, but it's profitable as well. So if you're looking to do that, this is going to be the episode for you. Donnie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Give us like a quick high level overview. What has been the journey like to build the real estate team that you currently have? Yeah. So, uh, man, it's been exciting. Actually, next month I will have a license for 10 years. Um, so I started as a dual career agent. I like to put that out there because I know a lot of people try that. I will say it's very hard, but it's also very doable. So I don't want anybody to be discouraged that they have to start dual career. But notice I said dual career, not part time. So that's a, a distinction <laughs> there. Um, first full time year after I went full time, I actually sold 72 houses by myself. No admin, no anything. Obviously, I was putting in the time, and that's what has helped a lot lead to the success. I jokingly, half-jokingly say that I started my team almost by accident because when my wife started saying, hey, you're still not coming home even though you quit the other job, I was like, cool, I'll hire an assistant. And then she was kind of like, you're still not coming home even though you have an assistant. I'm like, cool, I'll start hiring agents. Uh, so that's kind of how we started. And we started with that first agent and went through the whole buyer agent process of having a buyer agent and me doing the listings and then eventually moved on to having listing agents and then eventually moved on to me being out of production and allowing our agents to do both buyers and sellers. So what I'm hearing from you right out the gate is you were willing to put in the work. You were willing to put in the grind. So walk us through what did that time frame look like from the time you were working dual careers to the time where you're finally hiring agents and starting to step out a little bit. How many years was that? How many hours? What did that look like? Yeah. So I did dual career about 18 months. And I will tell you, I, it was basically two full-time jobs. I didn't take a day off for that 18 months. Or if I did, it was extremely rare. If I had a weekend off, because I didn't always have weekends off at my other job. If I had a weekend off at the other job, that meant I was doing an open house on Sunday and I was knocking 100 doors around that open house on Saturday. So I maximized all of those days, right? Uh, and it also meant if I got off work at the other job at three o'clock, I might've been changing clothes in my car to go show houses from four o'clock till dark and then going home and writing offers instead of eating dinner with my kids and my family uh, at that time. And then I got up the next day and did it all again. So there was certainly a lot of work and that's why I'm very specific about it being dual career and why I coach agents that they need to expect to basically work two full-time jobs that they wouldn't expect to be successful in that regard. So then after about 18 months, I did go full-time or, or single career, just went all in in real estate. And the key was I still pretty much worked just as much, maybe not quite as much, but I still worked a lot getting up, getting on the phone, putting in that traditional legion time, expireds, FISBOs, 
and slowly building out from there. And then once I got to the point that I was able to hire an agent, like I said, I just shifted. The, I still put in the same amount of time, shifted the focus from doing buyers and sellers, essentially to just doing sellers at that point. And then eventually worked my way out of production as I had enough critical mass to do that on the team. It sounds like your wife was patient with you. And then at some point that patience was like, okay, me, you know, like kind of describe like the family dynamic. I mean, you did this not only just yourself, not, but you were married and have some, some family kind of talk about the dynamic and, and how that played out. Yeah. So I do have a supportive wife. I am lucky and unlucky in the regard that prior to the career that I was in, when I got into real estate, I had been in the restaurant industry, which was a 60 to 100 hour a week job for 13 years anyway, and honestly left that industry and went to my other job uh, because I was missing my kids growing up and my daughter's about to go into high school. And, you know, I had my daughter when I was 19. By the time I was 30, I was going, okay, if I don't make a change, I'm going to completely miss this and you never get this time back. Uh, so we were very fortunate or unfortunate, however you want to put it in the regard that we were kind of used to it. You do have to set boundaries and standards with your family then. So yes, my family was supportive. And the few times that maybe they accidentally weren't supportive, it was kind of like, hey, let me remind you that you want to be able to buy the shoes with this money we're making, that kind of stuff, right? Uh, I think the bigger one that I see with a lot of people is their kids. They really struggle with, oh, I'm not spending enough time with my kids, or they just struggle with controlling their kids. And I, I know that's part of society. I was fortunate enough that I was raised with a pretty firm dad and I was able to pretty quickly set that standard that, hey, just because I got off work at the other job at three o'clock and I got home at 3.30, you don't need to consider me being off and being a dad until six. Because from 3.30 to six, I'm going to make business happen because we've got a dream here. But after six o'clock, my time is yours. That kind of stuff. Uh, of course, there was times that I was out showing houses and I couldn't do that. But that was kind of my general rule. I will also add the year I listed 109 houses in 2018, I listed 109 houses. And literally if somebody canceled, my wife and I were like, yes, we can go out to dinner. So there were times that we spent months where it was like, oh, I hope somebody cancels so we can go out. So there was a lot of work involved and yes, a lot of support. Um, and sacrifices have to be made is what I always say. Looking back, would you do it the same way? Yeah, I think I would. I'd probably try to grow faster, but other than that, yeah, I'd do it the same way. Growing faster, do you think that would require more of your time? See, that's it. Probably I would need to delegate faster versus more of my time. That's probably the thing. Like there's so many things that I did along the way that people told me to do, my coaches, and maybe I put them off for a year. And then when I finally did it, I was like, oh, why didn't I do this sooner? So there's a lot of things along the way that I put off for a year because I had my doubts on and then wished I would have done it sooner. What are the things in your business, in your team that you do that makes it successful that you feel like other team leaders are not doing and that's the reason they're not successful? So I think that I knew when I was getting close to the point that I could start getting out of production, but I still had to be in production and run a fairly large team because I believe that a team should be 15 to 20 agents before their team leader starts to get out of production. That once again, you're almost working two jobs. You're working full time trying to list 100 houses a year, and then you're also trying to manage 15 or 20 agents. I think agents have to embrace when they get to that point that essentially it's going to get worse before it gets better and you need to make a 12-month commitment. Hey, if I've got 15 agents right now and I feel like it's all I can do, but I don't quite have the profit to get out of business yet, you have a 12-month goal, get it to profit high enough that you can get out of business. Otherwise, you're 
lagging in that area where you still have two full-time jobs forever and they never get over that hump of critical mass. So talk to me, okay, so 15 to 20 agents is really about getting to a critical mass of income, getting into a critical mass of team unity. Yeah, I think it's more the income because obviously when you're in production, outside of your marketing costs, pretty much all that money kind of goes to the bottom line. And once you start splitting up an agent, agents don't like to hear me say this, but the truth is the agent split is always going to be your highest expense as a team leader. They look at it the opposite. They look at it as your, their highest expense. But the team leader, when you look at a PL, the agent is your highest expense. I think most team leaders, depending on their profitability, how they spend their money, can probably get out of production at 10 to 15. My rule was I never wanted to get a job back. So I went for 21st because that way if two or three people left the team at one time, I was still above 15 and I didn't start, all of a sudden start getting the job of being the agent back. So my goal was once I filled my time with team activities versus listing activities, I didn't want to have to revert back to that because I believe taking that step backwards hurts people more than taking the extra time on the front end. This is a little bit personal, so you don't have to answer this, but can you describe what specifically 15 or 20 related to? Like, was it a, like, like, let's say your income goal was 15 or 20,000 a month or 30,000 a month. Was it like, did it match your current income or like, how did it get to 15 or 20? No, I think the income went backwards a little bit. I can tell you the year I lost, I hired my first listing agent and I started giving up listings. I made $100,000 less than I did the year before. Let me tell you that now. Uh, and what I discovered out of that is if you're going to do a listing agent model, you need at least three to four listing agents to replace you because they're probably not going to produce like you. And then you got to split the money with them also. Uh, so the money did go backwards, but I made high enough profit before that, that I was willing to take that cut. For instance, right now, uh, in the last year, I've hired a CEO to help me with the team and I've hired an internal coach that does nothing but coach my team. Both of those salaries are close to six figures. And both of them with bonuses can make six figures. I knew I was going to take a cut and pay this year in order to be able to grow my team more long-term. So let's talk about the craziness of you running an absurd amount of production yourself while you're getting closer to 15 to 20 agents. Like walk us through a day of Donnie's schedule. Yeah. So I always protected my time. As long as I was in production, uh, my schedule was always admin in the morning. And a lot of coaches disagree with me on this. They tell you, don't check your email. Don't check your phone before you do lead gen. I think the opposite because I know, because I've struggled with this, I want to do a great job for my clients. So if I got up in the morning and didn't do any admin work and I got on the phone, what was I thinking about the whole time I was on the phone? I was thinking about the admin work that I didn't do. So my role is opposite. My role was get up in the morning. Typically I would do role play because I built my business a traditional way with expires and FISBOs. I had five role play partners around the country because I knew two or three of them weren't going to show up. So you couldn't have the same one every day because you'd never role play because they were only show up one day a week. So I had multiple role play partners. So I did script practice, study affirmations, all that, like from 6.30 to 7, 7.15. Uh, from 7.15 to 8, I did admin type work, make sure I got everything cleared out of the way because I knew there was nothing between 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock that the world was going to burn down if I didn't handle it. That gave me permission to be able to get on the phone and produce business from... Mental and emotional away. permission, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and literally, I would use a dialer and put my phone in another room 
so that I couldn't be interrupted by the phone and wouldn't give myself permission to have the email tab up. And uh, then I could definitely make my calls focus on lead gen. And then after that, I would have to work in training. Of course, I wasn't able to do as much training for the agents. And then I'd have to go to appointments um, and answer the calls in between. So it's still pretty hectic. It's not easy. There's still a lot of time involved in there because you've got to work on those appointments as well as work on helping your agents. So, you have different splits for your agents based on what they bring in and based on uh, what you bring to them. What percentage of, of the business that your agents bring in is, is from the team and what percentage is from them? Ah, that's a good question. So I will tell you probably my highest producing agent also brings in the highest percentage of business from his own stuff. And he's at about 25%. We actually looked at his number yesterday. So he's about 25% from his own business and 75% from my leads. And the rest of the agents, I would say, are lower than that, are definitely lower than that, bringing in their own stuff. So that being said, obviously, with you bringing in 75% plus of agents' businesses, that's really the incentive for them to stay. So I think there's a lot of incentives. I'm very cautious about saying that and putting that out there because most agents think that the value of the team is the leads. And I'm scared by us saying that and saying I bring in 75% of the team, people only see the value of the leads. I think the value of the team is the accountability and the daily habits to be successful. I think the leads are a bonus. So yes, that is a huge value that I'm providing those leads. We do put out about 1,500 leads a month for the team. We want to give them those tools. I also want to teach them to be better than when I found them. So I highly encourage them to build their own business. I teach a social media class during our onboarding boot camp. I teach a sphere of influence class during our onboarding boot camp so that they can build their own business. And I really try to teach them that my business is there to supercharge what they would have done on their own. Um, But it just ends up that most agents, even with the classes and even with us encourage them, honestly, aren't great at building their own business. They just struggle with it. So I don't want it to be that that's the team value because I know I, in the beginning, I thought the same way, even as a team leader, I remember talking to people and going, well, if your team's not giving you a bunch of leads, why are you even on the team? Now I would not answer that question the same way because now I've seen people come on my team and not take leads, but double and triple the business and them say, I'm not taking your leads, but my business is better because I'm doing the habits I should have been doing anyway, because I'm around other successful people. Yeah. And so you have the accountability from the the coaches that you hire, but you also have the accountability from the people they get to be in the room with. That's right. And and, and worth way more value than to whatever split differences might be or or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Love this. So you did expireds for sub by owners. It sounds like scripting, et cetera, which was my journey too, uh, which I loved. Did you find that getting agents to do that was hard for you or easy for you? I mean, to, to pass on that level of work ethic, skill set, et cetera. No, it's almost impossible um, <laughs> is what I have found. Uh, even to this day, I purchase a program that gives the agents expires. I've taught a class to several of our agents and I can't get them to do it longer than about a week. It is very, very hard to get agents to do it. I think being on the phone, producing business is job number one for a real estate agent. And I think getting agents to produce business is one of the hardest things to get them to do. It's, it's unfortunate in a lot of ways. So you build a business. And so this was kind of my journey as well, right? I built a business on expireds and physios. I built a team and then I was training them. And even with daily training, of course, and the scripting, the role play, the things that you were doing with people across the country, it was still hard to get that consistent action. So was it at that point that you realized, hey, I need to go ahead and get inbound lead sources to be able to grow this thing? 
So I actually started with some inbound lease horses to supplement my expireds and FISBOs. Like the year I listed 109 houses, about 55 or 60 of them were expired and FISBOs. The other 50-ish were from other sources, you know, Zillow leads that needed to sell, SOI that needed to sell, that kind of stuff. So I did a little bit of all of it fairly early on, but I learned fairly quickly when I hired a team that they weren't going to do what I was going to do. And I had to make it easier on them. Otherwise, many of them weren't going to succeed. So it's really a matter of how do I get the highest percent of people to be able to succeed? And the truth is oftentimes making it as easy as possible for them to do that is how you increase that percentage. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between five and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us and let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. Yeah. So let's talk about the business mechanics here. I mean, like you said, the largest expense on a team is the agent's. And yet, I mean, leads aren't always cheap either. So this is kind of the conundrum and why teams oftentimes they can do a lot of volume, but like I've had people do three, 500 transactions or more a year come to me and they're like, Hey, I'm about ready to go bankrupt. So talk to us about how is it that you could profitably build this? Is it the fact that you're able to leverage cheaper lead sources? Like how can you make it work when many others can't? So I have a mixture. I have some of the most expensive lead sources around. We have Zillow Flex. It doesn't get much more expensive than Flex. Um, so I definitely have a mixture of high uh, cost leads as well as lower cost leads that do help with profitability. I think if you try to build it all on Zillow's and all those kind of lead sources, you're probably going to struggle being profitable. I think if you try to build it all on low cost lead sources, you're probably going to struggle if your agent's being successful because they have a longer cash conversion cycle. And when you bring in those new agents and all you do is give them Google pay-per-click, yeah, your profit is amazing if they ever follow up and hang around long enough to convert something. So I believe in having a mixture of both that I don't want to call Zillow and those kind of lead sources a loss leader. They're not. We're profitable. But some people would hear my profit percentage on those and go, oh, well, I wouldn't even do it. And I'm like, well, I'm doing it because I'm making money and it allows my agents to be highly successful. And then I make a lot more money off of these other leads that I'm able to give them. So it's a balance. Do you see, I mean, a lot of times humans naturally go in the direction of whatever's easier. So when they have the comparative Zillow leads to these other lead sources that require a bit more work, do you find that, that there's a struggle getting them to work these harder lead sources more consistently or 
So there used to be. I've actually made a really big push the last 10 years to give to get all the agents as far down the funnel or all the leads, sorry, as far down the funnel as we possibly can before they go to the agent. So we are at the point now of our team that about 90% of our agents are literally our leads. I keep saying that, sorry. Our leads are literally a phone call that have spoken to somebody else before they ever get to the agent. So we're at the point now that only about 10% are actually those leads that haven't been warmed up in some way for our agents. Is that through like ISAs or what's, what's the way that you're able to do that? Yeah, so customer service team, Zillow Flex, uh, Realtor Market VIP, right? That helping them build their own sphere of influence, building more social media, even being on the radio, uh, carrying a lot of listings for those incoming sign calls, right? So the more we brand ourselves and the more we market, the more market share we take, then the more people are incoming calling us and when they're able to talk to us and then we give them to an agent, they're already warmed up. Love it. What would you say that your vision is for yourself and the team, like five to ten, five to ten years down the future? Yeah, so I've got this vision that I think is really cool. We're we're pushing right now to get to a hundred agents, and then ultimately, what we want five years for the team down the road is to have a hundred agents who all make six figures. That's ten million dollars in profit for my team, not for me. And I think that's really cool for Legacy to be able to say, "Hey, I help my team make ten million dollars a year." in profit. Now, I don't know how many agents I have to have to actually get a hundred of them to produce at that level. Probably 200 would be my guess. Um, but certainly short term this year, we want to push to a hundred to start pushing that direction. And then ultimately, and I've said this almost from the beginning, I want to own a business, not a job. I think there's way too many uh, entrepreneurs out there that think they own a business and they really own a job because the day they quit showing up, the day they don't have any income coming in. And that's why I'm building my team out with CEOs and, and sales managers and people like that, because ultimately I would like to just work kind of when I want to work, own a business, be able to help agents be highly successful and be able to come in and love on them and train them and teach them how to make money and do stuff for their family without having the pressure of, oh, I've got to do this to pay my bills also. You've been in a work environment for a long time, well over a decade where you're putting in 60 to hundred hours of work. As you get to a place where your presence is not necessary to grow the business, like clearly you're not going to be able to just relax. That's like, what everybody tells me. <laughs> what's aspirations beyond real estate? Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I love cars. I kind of, kind of collect cars. So I will definitely spend some time uh, playing around with some old cars. Uh, and I will definitely spend some time doing some jujitsu. So I'll spend time doing those. And, you know, the truth is, it's not about doing nothing. It's about having the ability to do what you want to do. And then also, I've got some other business ventures I'd like to try out and maybe build in the back of my mind at some point after I take a little break also. So taking you back to when you're calling expireds and for sale by owners, what do you think, if anything like that did for you, like as far as like built who you are or what you learn, like, do you feel like that? I mean, at least in the area I call like obviously toughest lead source I've ever worked as far as real estate goes. Like, did that, was that the same for you? Yeah, I think so. So I think number one, it taught me to put in the work and it taught me that the universe rewards you. And by the way, I was not the guy who was instantly successful expires and FISBOs. I think that's a big message that people could take out of this podcast 
is it took me about a year to really get good at them. I tell my team all the time, I would call and call and call. And then I start whining my wife and be like, man, I'm sick of wasting my time. And then boom, I'd get one. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll keep doing it. Right. And then I call and call and call. And again, I start whining and be like, man, I'm tired of making all these calls. And then I get one. Okay. And then after about 12 months, it finally got consistent. So I think it taught me that the universe rewards your activities regardless of if you see it all the time. And I think that's a big thing. Way too many agents are caught up in their time commitment and, oh, I can't waste my time, blah, blah, blah. You know, I know agents that are Ubering at night to pay their bills, which is great. I commend their hard work, but then they're worried about their time on a client. If you're making $15 an hour Uber and your time's only worth $15 an hour, those clients aren't wasting too much of your time. Go learn something from them. That is a cheap college education to get out there and get some experience. So that's number one. Number two, it taught me for me to do the correct actions, not be attached to the outcome. When I've been at brokerages and I've been on these panels and people say, what's the most important thing about being successful in experience of FISBOs? My answer for many, many years now has been just do the work. Don't be attached to the outcome because if you're worried about the outcome all the time, it's going to stress you out. Just do what you know needs to be done. One of the, the potential risks, right, of just uh, attaching to the process, so to speak, is that like you could get complacent, right? And so obviously you were doing role plays every single day to not be complacent. In that course of the year, hearing yourself, were you were you recording and listening to your recordings? I was not. Okay. So you're just role-playing. Like, what do you feel like changed in your tonality or in your scripting over the course of the year that all of a sudden unlocked the success? So learning about upturn, upswings and downswings is one thing. Learning to not worry about the first objection, right? Learning to ask for the appointment no matter what they say. How many times did we have a FISBO that you go through the scripting and they're like, no, 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 no. And then you get to the end and be like, well, would you interview me? And they're like, well, fine, come over, but I'm not listening yet. Right. And you didn't even want to ask for the appointment because you were scared to. Um, So I think just those little adjustments that I made, hey, let me try this this way. Let me try this that way. That it just took me time to make those adjustments and get really good at it. Yeah. Once you got successful with expires, like, that became, you said, like half your business, right? I mean, you were doing like 50 transactions a year off of expired About 25 to 30 each. Wow. Then all of a sudden, I don't know about it, it was the same in your market. Those kind of went away. Like as the market got insanely hot, a lot of those went away. Like the, the number of them became so small. For our market, it was insignificant enough to where it wasn't even worth doing. We get one or two a day, something like that. What's your market been like? Are they really coming back strong or did they ever leave? No, we still don't have many, but I do want to point something out. And you said it yourself. You said that they were non-existent. And then you said we only have one or two a day. Well, first of all, one or two a day is 30 to 60 opportunities a month. And then if you look at the end of the month, that number probably goes to 10. So yes, not a huge number, but I would call 60 to 70 or 80 opportunities a month more significant than most agents realize. So I don't want agents to fall into that trap to saying, oh, there's only one a day, so there's no opportunity. That's 30 opportunities a month. 360 opportunities a year. The average agent in my market right now, I just checked the numbers this week, is on pace to sell 3.2 houses this year. Would three would an extra 360 opportunities a year help that agent selling 3.2 houses a year? So I don't totally. want people to think that, you know, just because there's not 10 a day doesn't mean there's not a huge opportunity there. 100%. So let's kind of break this down. Like in the year that you sold 25 or 30 each, what was the lead flow like? Ooh, it was higher than that. I would say... There was probably 80 to 90 expires a month. So obviously that puts it up to what, like 700. Now, of course, I 
took out, like after the first year, I quit calling people under a hundred thousand. I know a lot of markets don't, you know, they don't, they barely have a car under a hundred grand. My first year in business, my average price was $109,000. The average in my market at that point was 145. The second year I quit calling anything under a hundred. So that brought my average up to the average in the market. Um, so the lead flow is definitely higher than, than it is now. There's no doubt about it. But at the same time, I think there's more agents right now getting out of business as well as more agents that have that thought process of, oh, it's not worth calling because there's not very many of them. So I don't know that it's any more competitive or not, if you know, if that makes I mean, this sense. is pretty wild, right? If you have 80 to 90 leads a month and you're listing and selling 25 or 30 of them, I mean, you're, you're taking a third of the business. Well, so 80 or 90 a month, but I'm doing 25 or 30 a year. A year. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yes. So it's like 10... Okay, so you're doing like three, still three percent conversion or something like that. That's, that's yeah, it was reasonable. It was reasonable. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So talk to us about the process. Like, how many times did you? It was a kind of like a call or die, call till they die or yes. buy. Type so thing. I, I am definitely a call till they die. Definitely believe in ten days of pain, that kind of stuff. Um, I, when I fired, hired my first listing agent, one of our first listings wasn't expired, and his comment was, "You called these people for twenty eight months." And I said, yes, I did. He said, one time they didn't answer the phone for six months. I'm like, so? I don't care, right? So, but I will tell you at that time, our average price in our market was about 190,000. That was a $460,000 listing. So it was that. And I'll also say my first over $500,000 listing was an expired. And I think they answered the phone on the eighth call. If I would have quit at the seventh, I would have missed out on my first over $500,000 listing and get this. The agent that they had expired from is very, very well known in the luxury world. She's an amazing agent, been around forever in our market. Every expired I ever called of hers ever said, don't bother calling me again. I've already got the best agent in the world, except for this one. And they answered on the eighth call, I believe it was. I went over there. They signed that day and we sold that house. Um, so sometimes it's just about doing the actions. Did that start to create a shift for you in that space? Um, you know, did that lead to some leverage where it's like, hey, there's at least one out there that that I was able to sell that this agent wasn't like did that create an uptick for you? Yeah. And I don't know that I ever tried to leverage that agent. I don't think I did, but certainly yeah. I did leverage. I am a professional and I'm an expert in getting homes sold that didn't sell the first time around. So I was able to leverage that overall, overall. And I think a lot of people don't realize that expires in general raise your average price. Like right now, if you are a new agent and you wanted to get out there and do something to create your business, as the market changes, you should be calling expires because as the market changes, if it does go down, what's the first thing to expire? What are the first houses that don't sell? Higher prices. If you want to raise your average price next year, start calling expires right now. 100%. If nothing else, because they're overpriced, but yeah, they're usually at the higher level because the higher the market, the harder they are to sell. So when I started doing expireds, it was the prices in the market were increasing. So it was kind of nice. It's like when they were listed, they were definitely overpriced. But by the time that I got to them, it was closer. And if I held them for a bit, it caught up. Now we might not be in that benefit, right? If the market goes down or stays flat, how does that change things? Like as far as you're on the listing presentation, obviously you got to prepare them, but, but kind of describe what you feel like it would be like to work with expireds in a decreasing market as opposed to an increasing one. That's an interesting question. And I think it comes back to being a master of your job. I think way too many realtors don't want to put in the time 
they think of the job as, oh, it's just making the phone calls. It's just doing this. But a big part of this job is mastering your skills. And I had one coach early on that was actually really inexpensive, but he always preached master your skills, master your skills. I remember I paid $2,000 to do a boot camp with this coach and you were supposed to learn his list and presentation and two weeks in, you had to blindfold yourself and send him a recording of you saying the listing presentation word for word. So I learned early on from him to be a master of your skills. And I think that would be even more important in this market to be able to say, hey, y'all were already overpriced. Here's where the market's going. I'm an expert in this area. This is what you need to do realistically to get it sold. Awesome. Where do you see your team 12 to 18 months from now? 100 agents, uh, $200 million a year in sales, pushing to 1,000 sales a month or 1,000 sales a year, 1,000 transactions. In 12 to 18 months? I think so. So, I mean, we're What's, 50 agents now and we're adding uh, five to six a month so far every month this year. So, Yeah, so five or six a month, that's 60 a year. So you're on track. So it's really yeah. just consistently doing what you're doing. Nothing crazy has to happen in order to get there. It really does. I'm trying to get it to 10 a month because I know yeah. there's going to be some turnover and whatnot along the way. So I'm trying to hedge my bet. And that's kind of the way I run my business. There's another agent here in town when I was at another brokerage and I was first building out my team and he already had a team selling like 200 a year at that time. And I tell my, my team this story also. And we were talking about, I was like, man, what should I do next? Right? Like we had a really good relationship. And he said, you just need to be an amazing listing agent. And I said, what's that mean? He said, it means you can list 50 a year. So when he said that, I was like, cool, I'm listing 100. That's how I set my goal to list 100 because he told me that 50 a year meant I was a good listing agent. So I was like, cool, I'm doing 100 then, whatever, right? So I kind of think the same way about building the team. I think I can reach my goal on five or six agents a month, but I'm really trying to reach 10 a month. So. Love it. Donnie, thank you so much for coming on and sharing about your life and your business. For those of you out there listening, this is a blueprint to build a real estate team that is profitable. It's also a blueprint for how you can work expires and for sale by owners, which are coming back in mass. And there's just a lot of business that can be had there. It's also, as Donnie said, it's a way to up your price point. You want a bigger price point where you can make bigger commissions. This is a great set of ideas that you can learn from. Write down something you learned today. Share it with somebody you know so it can hold you accountable. This freedom is acquired one action at a time. And if you take steps day by day before, know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 